Hello and welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. I'm Angie Mazzetti. I think when we, when it comes to diversity and inclusion now, what companies are realising is that it's really impacting their brand. That's the voice of Dr. Marisa Ronan, who's Managing Director of the European Section of Synapse, a consultancy that specialises in diversity and inclusion. Millennials, she believes as digital natives, are getting pickier about where they want to work. So if companies want to attract the best talent, they have to become more aware of diversity and inclusion and not just pay lip service to it. Marisa also believes that we can't just blame everything on men and that they need to be seen as empowered to make change happen. The emphasis solely on men making change can can lead many to feeling persecuted so that they are not kind of being depicted as agents of change and just as you know the cause of the problem and I think that's that's unfair. Marisa believes that women talking amongst themselves is important but it's not going to solve anything. When you get men at the table, it's really important because they get to be heard. Their own kind of uh, challenges get to be heard. They get to listen as well to the experiences of women that they mightn't be privy to otherwise, because often women, we speak amongst ourselves and we don't have necessarily maybe the opportunity to voice our concerns or the challenges we face in our day-to-day working life. And often we're, we're quite intimidated or scared to even do so. Marisa did her primary degree in psychology, sociology and English, and then she did an MA in literature. Marisa went on to do a PhD in the Clinton Institute in International Studies in UCD, which brought her to the Dartmouth Summer School in the United States. And that changed everything and began the journey for her to where she now is, a leading expert and trainer in diversity and inclusion. Um, I really loved academia and particularly teaching and so during my PhD I taught as many courses as I possibly could Um, and many of those courses contained a feminist criticism component Um, but as my PhD wore on I became more interested in masculinity and the impact of um, gender norms and assumptions on both men and women which has been useful for my current role because it informs how I view those assumptions and their impact in the workplace. Um, and so it's, I find it always interesting how what we do informs our later work. Um, what was a surprise to me and was perhaps unexpected was that I didn't have the linear career that I had planned. And my word of, word of advice for, for most women would be um, to prepare yourself not to just go into one single career and to be able to kind of take jumps and risks. It's often really hard because there's more of an emphasis, I suppose, on safeguarding um, any tenure. Tenure, yeah, and then just kind of having, you know, a, a financial, regular income is so important. Good pensionable job. Good pensionable job is really is really key. It can be a big a big mental change that we actually have to undergo ourselves to take those risks um, and jump from one career to the other. But I think it will actually have in the long term um, a great impact on uh, who we are and what we can actually contribute to whatever industry we end up in. I mean, I hear that from a lot of people that, you know, the career progression now is more like a labyrinth rather than a ladder. Definitely. And I think um, kind of the younger generation are more prepared for that than I think my own, perhaps. Um, And you're not that old. (laughs) I'm feeling it. Um, But there there is kind of, when I've um, worked here, even in Trinity, with students, they really get a strong sense that what they do next won't be what they will end up doing for, you know, even five years. That has repercussions, actually, for different industries. because they realise that actually it's quite difficult to maintain interest in employees. And when we talk about kind of um, 
the working environment for women that actually plays in uh, quite seriously because we're going to be less loyal to companies who don't appreciate us and there's more kind of change over time which has repercussions for um, for those companies so it's in their best interest to ensure that there's the ability to retain that they look after people really that's 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 definitely it and um and that you know to increase kind of a sense of, of loyalty um, and if you're not feeling included it's actually difficult to 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 stay in different working environments i was interested in what you were saying there about uh, different masculinities and femininities that whole gender fluid thing it's it's really changing there is no kind of typical male typical female or typical fe- female or male roles anymore are there i think it'll take a while for us to get to that stage where um there is kind of we're more cognizant of the fluidity of gender and gender roles it, we're definitely there in terms of um, broaching it in the media and bringing it into conversation i don't think we're necessarily there in real terms um when we approach kind of um the structures of organizations i think there is a lot of work that needs to be done um, but it is encouraging to see the discussion of um how those gender assumptions don't necessarily um replicate the feelings and the experiences of men and women in the workforce. So how does Synapse work? Did I say it right there, Synapse? Uh, well, either, I suppose. Um, uh, Synapse um, is a consultancy that specialises in diversity and inclusion. So really what we do is we concentrate on, on training with companies so that they have the tools that they can ensure that they're promoting inclusion at every level in their organisation. So one thing that we do that's probably the most successful part of our programme is we provide workshops for 20 um, to 25 people, often um, at the executive level. And our workshop usually lasts two to three hours and in it um, because myself and my partner in Australia who leads the Australian branch um, are both academics we ensure that our program is informed by evidence-based research and we have this wonderful workshop that explains in, in ordinary terms the science behind diversity and inclusion and particularly unconscious bias. So we look at showing how unconscious bias uh, manifests in everyone, not just men, and we have our own actual unconscious bias testing that we sometimes do with clients. That's a great way to kind of explore personal biases and what they look like. And what we emphasise in our workshops is that everyone leaves with a toolkit to address those biases um, so that they can impact their organisation at every level and that there's a shared language that participants leave with. Also at a simple level, it just provides people a nice opportunity to talk about their own experiences. And so over the years, um, both myself and Dr. Jennifer Whelan have like this repository of really interesting um, experiences that have been shared with us um, across different sectors. We see that often there are uh, similar challenges no matter what sector we're dealing with. There There are shared challenges across the board, but it's Interesting when, we, when we're working with a given sector, how they can have specific challenges, be it, say, in the construction industry, uh, mining, um, be it in fintech, or even academia, and actually working then with clients to see how they can um, ensure that they're giving their employees and their leaders the skills and the tools to address those challenges, to create a better working environment for everyone. So what do they do in the course of a workshop? Do everybody just sit around and share? Well, we start off um, with an introduction to what diversity first and foremost actually looks like. So diversity is usually the easiest thing. It's actually getting different people in. 
um, into your company. And often companies are very successful at, at getting a diverse group, um, but it's it's when it's retaining that diversity is actually the challenge. So that investment is lost if you don't focus on inclusion. So we explain what inclusion looks like. And everyone, no matter who you are, has experienced being excluded. And we open it up to the floor and we talk about what that actually looks like. What we then do is we look at unconscious bias and how cognitively it actually impacts us and what that actually looks like in terms of everyday challenges. When we look at understanding the business case for diversity and inclusion, we also look at why unconscious bias is hard to address and that it takes you know, a concerted effort by everyone on a day-to-day basis um, to ensure that there's a working climate that everyone feels included. And do people get exhausted with it, though? I think that's my biggest fear, um, is that uh, post-Me Too, that there is kind of a a diversity and inclusion fatigue that's growing. And um, there's a real risk there that there will be eventually a pushback. And that there is, um, I suppose... Uh, a lot of box ticking that goes on so it's it's quite easy to organize diversity and inclusion events or women in leadership events but to actually really change the culture of an organization is is really difficult and it does take um, investment both financial and time and so hopefully we'll see more of a movement to to that in the coming years we're a little bit behind australia which is um which has a much more um kind of accepted knowledge of the value of diversity and inclusion at the corporate level i think we're catching up um definitely here in ireland and i'm interested to see what what happens next i've been at conferences where they talk about uh, diversity and inclusion and you'll have people who were former i was at one in belgium a couple of years ago former diversity and inclusion officers and they said it's fine it goes so far and then they just get fed up and the person who was at the top who was you know all behind it moves on and then the next person comes in and they really don't want to know how do you embed that sort of culture that no matter who goes at the top or in the middle that the diversity and inclusion piece stays the same or it gathers momentum even um, i think there really has to be a commitment to um, not just do a one-off training but to ensure that there is an actually a, a wider structure that supports Um, diversity and inclusion practice and um, we see with a lot of multinationals who are kind of further along the their journey in promoting diversity and inclusion that they have training often on an annual basis so any new hires actually have that shared language and the tools to address the challenges of unconscious bias and also um, that commitment really has to be led by the top so if there is change that there is kind of a consistency in terms of that commitment Um, and there's there are there interesting kind of I suppose best practice cases that we see more and more um, in the in the private sector that we have a lot to to learn from and so it's encouraging in that way I think it's an interesting time to be a diversity and inclusion consultant in in terms of kind of the idea of actually having impact now is, is an exciting time. One thing I wanted to ask you about was the pipeline the pipeline of, of women coming to the top I know you're going to talk about diversity in a generalized way but Gender diversity uh, is a particular area where you see the change not happening. How can we ensure that, that the pipeline becomes more robust and that women don't get knocked out of the leadership pipeline? Um, it is difficult. So we often see vertical segregation or the jaws of inequality happening where you have at the entry level a high number of um, female applicants and female hires. And then at mid-level, it's starting slightly to wane, but it drops off completely um, by more senior levels. 
and it's 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 going to take a concerted effort both at a cultural level so we need legislation change but also within organizations that they're ensuring that um, those particularly at the stage where women um, start families those who do that they feel that they can come back and that they're valued um, also and also that they're not mommy tracked and um, I think even the, the, the changes are really simple um, I know I've, I've, I've heard from so many women but um, one example actually sticks in mind where a woman who was approaching um, their boss to, to say that they were pregnant and, and I think a lot of women enter into a meeting like that with trepidation because you know that everything's going to change both personally as well as for your career and um, their, uh, their boss actually was kind of shocked first of all and immediately launched into um discussion of you know how much work needed to be done um and there was a lot of stress involved so for someone who's pregnant when it comes to your your blood pressure even um it's actually discouraging to hear how uh, your impending pregnancy and, and the birth of your child is going to impact your career. So I encourage leaders um, and executives to not really say anything, to be human about it. First, congratulate. Congratulate your employee um, and then arrange a date to have a meeting that will specifically address the challenges that, that might arise. Even that, that very first step is so important because in those moments, you can actually lose that person. They, they mightn't then feel that loyalty. Just in one sentence. In one sentence, in actually in your reaction. And they're looking to see what that reaction is. I think most women are kind of measuring um, what is the potential impact um, of motherhood on their career. So it's kind of simple measures like that is just, just congratulate um, your employee and, and come back to it. Um, also kind of, you know, that they're remaining in touch with um, women who are on maternity leave but not putting too much pressure. Um, and what I found here actually, um, I was lucky in that when I came back from maternity leave um, I was encouraged to go to a conference which was really kind of pulling off the band-aid it was a big step I was uh, breastfeeding at the time um, and actually it was kind of a challenge I think that was set to get me back into that um, into that uh, working mode and I find that actually really really useful um, I, and I remember being in the airport and feeling myself <laughs> for after I had I'd been so kind of you know stuck in that uh, in, in the, the motherhood bubble, the motherhood bubble yeah, um, which, is was kind of, which is lovely um but but kind of sometimes traversing that uh that big leap from the home back to the work life can be so big that we need to kind of just to remind ourselves who we are um in the workplace and connect so if you have um the idea that uh, you know if you uh, can't see it you can't be it if you have examples where women have successfully come back into the workplace if you have those mentors in place if it's part of a structure in an organization that's really going to have um, a significant impact on uh, your ability to retain uh, women after they go on maternity leave. Having that support is actually key. At a more kind of at a macro level, of course, there are you know legislation that that needs to be brought in and and what in, sort of legislation? Well, in twenty sixteen, we saw the increase of paternity leave um, from I think two days to two weeks, and um, it, it's oh, it's a very small step, but it is a, a step in the right direction. What we've seen since is that there is actually quite a low take up. And so when we talk about this idea of, you know, if you can't see it, you can't be it, it goes for men as well. So if leaders in executive positions take those two weeks off and they show that you're not going to be penalised, it will help actually more men take that paternity leave. And it is an important time for men to connect with their children. And sometimes, there are, they, and historically, they've often been denied that. Um, and I think there cannot be true equality until we have better parental leave. When I did research in Norway and um, had a wonderful experience in the Arctic Circle and stayed with a, a fellow researcher and his family and he spoke of the change and the impact 
at a societal level when they increased paternity leave at that time right up to six months and that it gave him because it was compulsory and um, the the uptake obviously was extremely high there were you know financial benefits um for for um for fathers to actually take that time but the impact i think is astronomical and he explained how even himself, just even by being within the domestic sphere and knowing and having to kind of um, do all of the, the, the mental labour that's involved, um, as well as the, the, the practical labour, that that gave him an insight of what was needed when he would return to work. And there's a, a, you know, a greater sense of shared duty. Also, you know, when you think of in, within the workplace, the impact that that has if you have increased paternity leave is you have um, kind of less of a penalisation for women with this threat of kind of that they'll take um, that they might take um, maternity leave and we also know that even women who don't take maternity leave who, who don't have children are similarly penalised as those who do um, so what's interesting and I've been excited by I suppose in the last couple of years is the different kind of um, um, the, 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 the positive developments at a political level so um, recently uh, speaking to Catherine Martin who leads the um, Women's Parliamentary Caucus um, she has uh, endeavoured to ensure that there's a cross-party um, organisation of women so addressing potential uh, legislation that might impact women there's a coming together of politicians across party lines and that's really important because we do still have such a low uh, representation in Irish government of women um, and that given that this you know Ireland 51% of the Irish population are women we do need to ensure that our needs are represented and um, so working in diversity and inclusion we, uh, we we think both at you know an industry level but also at the macro level because for real change to take place it has to be has to, the, the structures need to be there in society um, I think what we might see is that um, some larger multinational companies who are more advanced I suppose in giving you know extended leave that that will influence legislation later on um, and that is one hope that we'll actually see. I was in Aris and Uthran last week for International Women's Day and President Michael D Higgins spoke very eloquently as always and he said that we really need a paradigm shift so this, you know, the old way of working nine to five, which is, you know, geared around the male model of work, it is changing already, yes. but it needs to step up a gear. He didn't say that, I'm saying that now. Yeah. But he was saying that we do need a, a paradigm shift. Yes. And I think there was universal agreement, most of the audience were women, but yes. um, I think there is a general acceptance of that. But, you know, you're still, I just come back to the, the pipeline issue. Yeah. There are still ways that women get knocked out of that leadership line. And sometimes it's because of the labyrinth and they're, you know, they're going left and right before they go up just to get a better idea of a business. But sometimes they get knocked out by things like uh, a package going, you know, so yeah. people think short term. You know, like, well, I'll take the package. Yes. Uh, I can get my new kitchen or yeah. I can buy a new car or whatever it is. Yeah. And then they find that they're, you know, they've been knocked out of that leadership line yes, and it's yeah. very hard to get back in there and it leaves the, the leadership race up the organisation much more open to men than women because there's a fewer, there's a smaller pool of women to draw from. Yes. What can companies do to, to maintain you know, more women going up the line? Um, I think mentorship is key. Um, there needs to be kind of uh, structures in place and working with some uh, clients they have um, endeavoured to 
have strong ties with um, women who go on maternity leave and that they have kind of a buddy system. Um, in terms of best practice, I think it's it's a great example where women who've already gone on maternity leave and returned and continued with their career and um, their, you know, the trajectory in terms of progress and they've been coupled or buddied with um, women who are on maternity leave and just even having someone to share your concerns and your fears and again an example of the success in returning being able to um, over whatever period of time return to work and you know climb that ladder again is really important. Um, How does a mentorship actually work? Well, it depends um, what, you know, what, what type of mentorship um, is sought. So there can be a mentorship at you know, a woman-to-woman level. Um, there can be mentorship, um, which I think is definitely needed, um, between male leaders and executives um, and their female counterparts. What we've seen recently in reports um, post-Me Too is that in Wall Street, um, male leaders are now more reluctant to mentor women. And this is a concern that does need to be addressed because women are then so much at a disadvantage if they don't have that mentorship. I think in another um, another podcast, the idea of having a sponsor was mentioned. So beyond just being in your organisation, having someone that will mentor you in that specific role, but having someone outside the organisation that actually might help you in your full career trajectory and um, that idea of not having a linear career path but moving you know within just seeing, and a bigger picture. And seeing a bigger picture is so important and um, often men are just better at networking um, and they have more opportunities to do so and the impact of that networking is greater so we do need to kind of focus on what measures we can put in place in organizations to help. We do know now that while the emphasis was on leaning in, research has shown that women are penalised for leaning in if there isn't structures in place to actually assist them in that endeavour. How are they penalised? So they're penalised because, um, and this goes back to unconscious bias and stereotyping, it's the idea that um, women who are seen as ambitious are often seen as aggressive, so they're seen in different terms. The idea of what constitutes a leader is often written in very specific male terms, and the idea of a, a woman acting in those ways is seen as kind of almost wrong. And so uh, if they're assertive, it's seen as being you know, bossy rather than the boss. So if there's no structures in place to assist women when they do lean in, the reality could be that they're penalised, that they don't actually um, ascend the ladder in the ways that they had they had hoped or wished. So that is why we, we do really um, uh, stress the, the, the need for unconscious bias training, that when you look at what, what those unconscious biases can constitute, how they operate and how they impede the progress of um, those diverse candidates, you're actually at a loss in the company if you don't actually work on those unconscious biases. Um, you see them in interesting ways. So when we work on the idea of kind of looking at um, tools to address unconscious bias, one kind of homework I gave to a group of executives was to look at their recommendation letters for both men and women and almost do a comparative analysis. Because the, the studies have shown that when um, we write, and this is men and women writing recommendation letters, that they're very different for male candidates versus female candidates. So male candidates, when they ha- receive a letter of recommendation, they're just longer quite simply um, they focus more on their professionalism whereas with women it's often on their kind of collegiality or their ability to work with others which might seem nice but when it's being read by you know you know elsewhere when they apply for a position isn't actually seen as having the strength that a male candidate 
actually might have. Um, so, you know, being aware of the, how those biases actually impact how we work on a day-to-day basis is really important. But you have to know that the biases exist, that everyone has them, before you can actually address them and build structures within an organisation that ensure that women and minorities um, are safeguarded from those biases. It's often regarded as, uh, you know, fixing women. We should be fixing the women rather than the system. Goes back to what the president was saying as well. Um, How do we get that mental shift away for for organisational behaviour? How do we get them to shift the thinking from fixing the women to fixing the the male model of work? Having, you know, been a consultant for um, a number of years now, I really think that there has to be, you know, as part of every endeavour, men at the table. I think that when we have networking opportunities, and I've been to many different ones across the city and also in Australia, they tend to comprise of women speaking to women, so it becomes an echo chamber. And if you don't have your male counterparts there with you to advocate for your needs, it's very hard to um, ensure that structural change will actually take place. Um, So we do need more of a commitment by men across um, organisations to ensure that that women are supported, that they're not going to be then um, penalised when they do lean in. And actually, when you get them at the table, when you get men at the table, it's really important because they get to be heard. Their own kind of uh, challenges get to be heard. They get to listen as well to the experiences of women that they mightn't be privy to otherwise, because often women, we speak amongst ourselves and we don't have necessarily maybe the opportunity to voice our concerns or the challenges we face in our day-to-day working life and often we're, we're quite intimidated or scared to even do so. So by having men at the table it's a really good step to ensure that um, real change can, can take place. So moving away, my recommendation would be moving away from just kind of like just networking ev- working events that comprise solely of women, being more inclusive, having uh, moving beyond just events to having you know structural elements including um, training be it at an e-learning level or better in person with workshops having uh, you know the metrics we, we've heard more and more how important metrics are as a way to um, ensure that there's kind of a, a sustained impact and that there are achievable targets and that companies are accountable I think when we, when it comes to diversity and inclusion now what companies are realizing is that it's really impacting their brand and um, so it's not just impacting their employees but actually um, who you know their target market is and employees talk employees talk and so um, you know with websites like the glass door where you can you know um, put your experience of working in an, in an organization out there for anyone to read and given particularly you know with millennials um, their propensity to move from one organization to the other it could actually have economic effects and an impact for organizations that aren't savvy enough I suppose to ensure that inclusion is at the heart of what they do. We've heard that the business case has been proven that you know diversity and inclusion really improves the bottom line but I remember reading an article in one of the daily newspapers there not so long ago and it just takes one person to say well that of course that's been disproven and then everybody will quote the person who said that case has been disproven. Do you know what I mean? Yes, yeah, For the yeah. whole thing to fall down. Yeah. Um, but I mean, what is the business case? The research has shown increasingly that there is a business case for diversity and inclusion, that it can drive innovation and problem solving. It, in, it can increase organisations' return on investment, their competitiveness, their governance, brand value and their agility. 
whilst the why is clear, often I suppose the how is more complex. So we know that um, organisations are more profitable when they're diverse and we have um, you know, the research coming out from the University of Chicago by Ronald Burt who produced several studies which suggest that people with more diverse sources of information are consistently just better at generating ideas. Sarah Ellison of MIT, she, she has shown that mixed sex teens can produce more creative solutions than those that are dominated by either men or women. So it's not just that a group of women are, are, are better, it's actually when you have a mixed group. Um, it actually has a cognitive effect on us and this is something we talk about in our training. And that cognitive effect is that when we see someone who looks different than us, actually intellectually and at a, at a, at a biological level there isn't a real difference. But within our mind we translate their difference physically into a difference intellectually we speak more clearly we challenge our own perceptions we're more open to a diverse thought and thinking um, and the impact actually can even be to prevent um, just groupthink similarity bias it really challenges our own conceptions but when you think about the business model you have to think that you know 51% of the world's population are comprised of women. So as end users for most products, and particularly when you look at the fact that women tend to do the purchasing um, more than men, when you don't have women in the room, there's the, the capacity to really fail when it is when it comes to representing their needs. And we've seen this in countless ways. Um, there's an amazing book that's out actually at the, at the minute by Caroline Criado Perez, Invisible Women Exposing the Data Bias in the World designed for men and she shows actually the effect can be quite dangerous when we don't consider women when we don't have women in that room designing um, and uh, simple things like actually uh, crash test dummies are the average weight of men and not women and um, women are 37 percent more likely to be severely injured in an accident given that um, the safety equipment within um, vehicles don't, isn't actually catering to their specific needs. Women oh, sit for breasts, for breasts even yeah. the simple things. Mm -hmm. um, they sit closer to the wheel because their legs tend to be shorter. Um, there are so many um, examples that are given at the size of phones that we have smaller hands that it's hard to, to grasp. And there was kind of the idea of um, you know how so many products have been you know the, the pink pound or the idea that um, you know the feminization of what was originally a male model for women making something pink isn't designing for women um, and I think you'll see kind of we've seen in the last 10 years a movement away from that at the market level um, and I wish they'd do it for little girls you go down some of the aisles I was in an aisle in a, a huge shopping centre in America and there was just one aisle that was pink and sparkles yes, yeah. and it was really scary yeah, it, it, <laughs> what what has been good, I suppose, is that there is there is some progress me, being made. And when you look at Lego, while there's they have kind of endeavoured to cater more to girls, and there's you know they're using it as a target market, and so the some of the products are kind of for girls, and they you know they're feminised themes. One thing that is important is that girls now use and play with Lego more and that that has an impact actually on their spatial awareness and um, even their interest in things like engineering and putting things together and when we talk about kind of the pipeline issue when we go back to even how we parent our girls versus our boys that all impacts in the long run and uh, the types of careers that women actually do go into and um, so it's important that design actually factors in and um, so ultimately there is undeniably an economic benefit to ensuring that you have a diverse team. 
the science is there in countless ways. We can see it within universities as well. That Sarah Ellison, that study showed that when you had a mixture of female and male researchers, that those uh, the, the, the studies actually were, were more successful overall. I believe they were even using uh, just only male mice in some of the lab experiments and that that has changed since. Yeah, and even actually when you look at the, the medical industry and even um, if you look at um, things like neurodiversity when we um, diagnose um, female children with autism, autism as, you know, even a science has really focused on on males, so it doesn't account for what that spectrum looks like for females. And across um, the, the whole kind of pharmaceutical industry, um, as Caroline Criado-Perez um, exposes in her book, it doesn't often account for female needs or female biology. Um, and that, that's actually quite troubling when you see what impact that that would have in the long run. Talk to me about your DNI discovery programme. What is that? I sought then to kind of create a programme that might work with multinational companies who've already done the groundwork in terms of having unconscious bias training and diversity and inclusion training and looking at what's next. Because I think if we just do that training, that there is a risk that just there'll be reduced buy-in over time. And so the kind of diversity and inclusion activity needs to remain cutting edge and emphasise impactful action. Um, And so we have to be careful as an industry ourselves as consultants that we don't kind of stagnate and create in the long term potentially more problems. I was looking particularly at the the tech sector where a lot of these issues arise given that there's uh, kind of uh, high numbers of men uh, versus a low uptake of women in the industry. And I thought, we know that we need to attract more diverse talent pools. How do we retain them? And how do we ensure that there's not kind of siloing within industries? How do we create a diversity and inclusion model that keeps people's interest? And so I had the idea of looking at getting people out of their companies and getting them engaged in a range of activities. So the idea was to map diversity and inclusion training onto their corporate social responsibility model. So most big multinationals already have very interesting, very well-funded um, CSOR models. So they're helping in different communities. They're looking at commun- community action and impact. And a lot of the organisations that they work with are quite quite diverse. Um, and the idea was to kind of to work to create a discovery challenge or a question that had at its heart a a kind of a diversity inclusion challenge and put that out there and bring a team of 20 together to try and find um, a solution. So the idea would be then it would help advance diversity and inclusion leadership skills and increase awareness of the value of diverse perspectives. So by being in a group of people, just even just talking about a concept or a challenge actually is more interesting than being... So you're giving them a scenario, are you? You're giving them a scenario. So like one example would be, um, say, men's sheds. Who are doing wonderful work. So looking instead just uh, at, you know at women's experience in the workplace, looking at men's experience, um, and looking at masculinity and mental health. So the discovery question I would come up with in that scenario would be: Can an intersection of art and technology help to promote mental health and resilience through creativity? They would be kind of set that challenge. That the, the group would come together to see: Well, what could they actually? do? Is there an app that could be created? Is there an awareness program? What actually could come out of it? And in that, um, in that challenge, 
what, what's actually happening is that they're putting diversity into action, as well as looking at the importance of inclusion. So the same could be done, let's say, with um, the wheelchair association. So the discovery challenge in that case might be um, inclusive design project to help tourists with limited mobility navigate Dublin city centre. Okay. And uh, so we'd be looking at the role that technology can play in promoting inclusive mobility in urban spaces. And again, by getting a group together, by having maybe secondary partners like uh, Dublin City Council, their beta project, project, which is brilliant, they do fantastic work, they're really innovative, and um, having, you know, uh, another kind of um, perspectives kind of included, like someone like Professor Elizabeth Goodman, the Chair of Creative Technology uh, from UCD. Having a group of people in that room and having a challenge to address, I think, is one interesting way to ensure that there isn't just that, that fatigue that seems to be emerging and that could be a big threat to inclusion in the long run. Do you think that fatigue is like, I really just don't want to do this and I like <laughs> things the way they are? Of course, that, that, that's going to be the case in a, in, a, in a lot of ways because no one likes change. Women don't like change. Um, and it, it can be very hard. Also, there is the idea that the emphasis solely on men making change can, can lead many to feeling persecuted so that they are not kind of being depicted as agents of change um, just as you know the cause of the problem. And I think that's, that's unfair. Because um, most guys, if you give them a problem, they just want to fix it. They just want to fix it, and um, if if we invite them, if you invite you know a range of people to the table, that's how you best come up with a solution. Um, and men in the workforce have their own challenges that I think, particularly mental health and parental leave, are kind of key issues that that they're struggling with themselves. And I think organisations need to, when they're addressing diversity and focusing on promoting inclusion, really look at it in the round. If you had five pieces of advice for women, particularly, particularly younger women or maybe mid-career, what might they be? My very first, I suppose, recommendation would be, and it's really simple, is to be kind to yourself. That all of the challenges that um, women face um, make it difficult in so many ways. So we have the emotional labour, the mental labour, and the um, that weight of carrying often the, the role within the domestic sphere as well as that in in you know in in our jobs and in our in our roles there so sometimes just actually give yourself a minute um we often overburden ourselves both in the home and in the workplace and we do that by you know saying yes to too many things so sometimes just say no and my second one would be um to look for a mentor inside your organization as well as outside of it and not just a female mentor but see if there's a male mentor that can help you traverse the challenges and um, that you might face in your industry and beyond the third would be a practical one when it comes to those challenges facing um, women who uh, choose to have children is that to talk to your partner about your plans and your expectations so that when it does come to the kind of the emotional labor and the logistics of the day-to-day challenges um, that your expectations are actually you know managed and that you can come up with a, you know a solid plan because you need that support it is difficult you'll find yourself lying in bed thinking about takes two to make a baby anyway. <laughs> that, that's exactly it number four would be to in your organization advocate for diversity and inclusion training to be introduced because it does make the difference 
it, I'd, I'd recommend that women come forward and share the challenges that they're facing with one another, create that community, um, and where possible, you know, um, big each other up, support each other, and ensure that uh, that we have some, you know, that that community to fall back on. I think it's great when, and, and some of the best experiences I've had is is with groups of women who've really kind of explained their challenges and you know how they've they've actually managed to overcome them having a community is great finally tell me your go-to song when you want to get yourself out of bed <laughs> and moving and you just think oh god do i need another day of this what, what do you sing to yourself or what do you press play and in your this, machine funnily if this was the hardest question for me and, <laughs> and i was like oh do i be honest and um, yes. i suppose it, it, it dates me um as an angsty 90s teen and uh, it would have to be anything by rage against the machine <laughs> it is <laughs> um well, well, their 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 whole album from nineteen ninety one. Um, there's a specific song that I won't name, but I imagine Annie oh, Rage on, Against the Machine. It has it has certain lyrics that really that, that really do kind of uh, uh, motivate, and you know sometimes it's just good to shout. Um, it's great for working out too as well. Marissa, anything else you want to say? Um, thank you so much, Angie, um, for for having me on and um, for providing this outlet for so many interesting women to talk about their experiences and the challenges that they face. And um, again, just amplifying women is is such a fantastic thing that you do. So thanks again. Pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. Well, that was Dr. Marisa Ronan, who's managing director of Synapse in Europe. Not raging against the machine anymore, but doing something to make change happen within the machine to benefit both men and women. Well, that's all from the Women in Leadership podcast for this week. Thanks for all your emails and tweets and suggestions for interviewees. Remember, you can contact us through the website womeninleadership.ie or by email info at womeninleadership.ie. And we're also on Twitter at leadingwomenpod. Until the next time, from me, Angie Mazzetti, and all here on the team in the Women in Leadership podcast, goodbye and take care.